So why are we studying the book of Ezra? Well, it's an interesting book. It's an historical book giving us vital details about the history of the chosen people. And there's another reason because Christ is actually in this book. And that ought to uh, thrill our hearts and that ought to be a real blessing to us because we can find the Savior in this short book of 10 chapters. And tonight we have one of those foreshadowings of the Savior. I just want to mention a few things that the Lord has brought to my attention. Now, during the 70 years of captivity in Babylon, the cup of Babylon, uh, the cup of Babylon's iniquity was being filled. Uh, so that the time of Israel's deliverance synchronized with the time of Babylon's destruction. The timing was just right for it was God's time to act. So during that whole period of time when the people were suffering bondage, the Lord was filling up the cup of Babylon's iniquity. And in 539, Cyrus, the king of Persia, defeated the Babylonians and became king of Babylon. His accession to the throne was a marvelous fulfillment of prophecy. We mentioned this last time, and you should know by now, Isaiah 44, verse 28, and again, chapter 45 and verse 1, and then Jeremiah, uh, also chapter 25. Then in addition to the prophecy, we have the image revealed unto Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, and as I mentioned last time, there are four parts of that great statue. The head, it was of gold, and the Lord was showing to Nebuchadnezzar and to Daniel something about this great world power, the great empire of Babylon. That's the head. Then following on from that, you have the chest and the arms of silver. Uh, so you have uh, duality here. That speaks of the Medes and Persians who succeeded the Babylonian Empire, led by this man before Cyrus. And then you continue on down that great image to the belly and the thighs of bronze. That speaks to us of uh, Alexander the Great and uh, the, the Grecians. And then you move down to the iron legs and then the feet, part iron and part clay. That speaks of Rome. And the stone is Christ, the everlasting kingdom. And so we have all these things here, but the point I'm emphasizing is this, that uh, Cyrus and the Persians wear the chest and the arms, the silver, and the great image of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And then also the four beasts that are brought to attention in Daniel chapter 7. This was a, a vision revealed or a dream revealed unto Daniel. Uh, the first beast was the lion, that's Babylon again, the bear, that represents the Medes and the Persians, and then there was the leopard, speaking of uh, Alexander the Great, and then the great uh, and terrible uh, beast that speaks of Rome, that destroyed everything. And so the Lord gave the word and then gave the vision or the image and then uh, the vision or the dream to Daniel of the four beasts. And so we keep that in mind as well. So in his first year, he made the proclamation, uh, permitting the Jews to return to rebuild their temple 
in Jerusalem. And one of the most prominent Jewish leaders was a man called Zerubbabel, mentioned often in chapters 1 through 6. Then he disappears. I'll say something about that a little bit later. But he plays a prominent part in chapters 1 through 6. He was a remarkable character who played a crucial role in the recovery of the people uh, in their return to Babylon. That's something that we need to give thought to tonight, one of the most prominent Jewish leaders. And in his story, we have a wonderful presentation of Christ, who leads his people out of the Babylon of this world, and he will take them then to the new Jerusalem above. So this man's Zerubbabel features prominently and points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a foreshadowing of Christ. So when we think about the work he did, uh, we think about our Savior. Now, we have a familiar trait, uh, a distinguishing feature about this man, especially in his character. He's not mentioned until chapter 2, and uh, he's mentioned there for the first time in chapter 2, verse 2. And we know that he migrated uh, to the land of Judah after Cyrus uh, allowed the exiles to return to, to build the temple. But did you know he's also known as Shezbazar in chapter 1, verses 8 and 11. I'm sure you were wondering who this man was because we learn here in this particular chapter that he was the prince of Judah. But I'm of the opinion that Zerubbabel, in actual fact, was Shezbazar. Now, Zerubbabel is said to have laid the foundation of the temple in Ezra chapter uh, 3 and uh, verse 8. Uh, there we have a look at the verse. And uh, we read there about Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, uh, and Joshua. Uh, and we read uh, that they set forward the work of the house of the Lord. So here's the man who laid the foundation. Chapter 5 and verse 2 confirms this as well. Then rose up Zerubbabel. We're talking about working for the night is coming. So on. Here's a man involved and he's working for the Lord. And in these two places we're told that he was the one who laid the foundation. Zechariah chapter 4 verse 9 also makes that clear. But in the letter to Darius, remember the time... The, the, the foundation was laid. Then for 15 or 16 years, there was no work done because of opposition. And then after that period of time, there was the reviving through the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. Remember the letter that was sent to get the work started again after that long period of time? It was sent to Darius to get permission to resume the work again, the work that had been stopped. And Shezbazar is said to have done this. Ezra chapter 5 and verse 16 and in verse 14 of the same chapter we're told that he was named the governor but in Haggai chapter 1 verse 14 identifies the governor as a rubble further proof that they are one and the same person Zerubbabel and Shezbazar are synonymous this was the Jewish name Zerubbabel and then the Babylonian name was uh, Shazbazar. <laughs> now that was a normal thing, the normal policy for the Babylonians to do, to take away the Hebrew name, to 
so that the people would lose their identity and give them a Babylonian name. For example, you think of uh, Daniel and his three friends, even when you think of Esther, who was around at this same period of time, roughly. Uh, her name was changed. She was called Hadassah, that was her Jewish name, but then she was given the name uh, Esther. So you can see the policy of the Babylonians was to remove the Jewish name, their Jewishness, and then to give them these Babylonian names. And in the book of Haggai, uh, we read several times about the word of the Lord came to Zerubbabel. And we also read about his response to the word when it came. Now, we, we keep this man before us as an image or a picture or a figure pointing us to Christ. And when the word of God came to this man Zerubbabel through Haggai or Zechariah, the word of God tells us that he obeyed the voice. He cherished the word. He loved the word. He did the will of God that was revealed to him in the word of God. And that reminds me of the Lord Jesus Christ who said in John chapter 4, 34, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. So this man's a rubble, Shezbazar, same person, uh, a Jewish name and a Babylonian name. This man cherished the word. He loved the word. He did the will of God. Now, I read a little quote today before coming out this evening about the will of God. And it says, when God bolts the door, don't try to get in via the window. The will of God will never lead you where grace, the grace of God cannot keep you. And this man knew that he had a work to do for God. He's a foreshadowing of Christ. He was doing the will of God. He was living his life in accordance to the Holy Scriptures. Is that not a challenge to us as the people of God as well to live our lives in accord with the Holy Scriptures, doing the will of God? Because if I'm not in the will of God, I can never be use useful in God's service. The same applies to you. It doesn't matter who you are. If we're not walking in the mind and will of God, we cannot be useful in the service of God. This man knew that God had called him. This man knew that he had work to do. This man knew that he had a contribution to make. And we'll be tied any of us if God has a work for us to do and we fall far short of that. Now, there were many leaders. Uh, we read of a number of them in the opening verses of chapter 2. We might say something about this next time. But there were a number of leaders in the first return. But it's obvious that Zerubbabel was the chief one. Now, that's deeply significant because in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 10, certainly this points us to Christ. He is described as the chiefest among 10,000. And the second chapter, and we'll come to it next time, uh, the second chapter is a, re a register of all who came back at the first return, which came back with Zerubbabel. And the language clearly indicates that he was leader of the entire company. He was in the royal line and listed in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are only three references to this man in the New Testament, Matthew 1, 12 and 13, and then Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, 27. So when you read a story, there's a word about his ancestry, the prince of Judah, his appointment, it was by the king, his assignment to build a house for God. He was the chief leader, raised up of God to lead a remnant from Babylon to Jerusalem. And Haggai identifies him as the head of the tribe of Judah after the time 
of the exile. So here's a man, God has set him apart. God has given him a mission to build a temple. And this we see Christ. He's a man who lives his life by the word of God. He's in the center of God's will. He's something to do for God. And he will not hold back until it is complete, until it's finished. Then we also think of him being a type of Christ in his titles. He's referred to in chapter 1, verse 8, as the prince of Judah, the son of Shealtiel, tribe of Judah, and family of David. He was the, great, he was the grandson of King Jehoiakim of Judah, First Chronicles 3, verse uh, 17, and therefore clearly a descendant of King David. And the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the flesh, came from the line of King David, the tribe of Judah. That speaks of his royalty, his princely and kingly feature of his work. Even in captivity, God's people had a prince. And while we live in this old sin-cursed world, we have a prince to whom allegiance is to be given to. We need to honor him. King Jesus, Prince Jesus, the Lord of Righteousness. Then he's also called Shezbazar. We've mentioned this in verse 8 and verse 11. And that word means joy and tribulation. It was a reminder that they were to have joy and tribulation for it would end. Uh, there was to be an end for this time of, of captivity. But concerning Christ, it reminds us of the joy he had when he endured tribulation in order to deliver his people from bondage. Hebrews 12, verse 2, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What was the joy? What was the joy before Christ? It was the glory following his sufferings. And he was suffering for his people. And the glory was the joy of bringing salvation to his, his chosen people. He joyed even on the cross and his tribulation because he was doing it for you and for me. He was doing it for his people given in the eternal covenant of redemption. He endured and he did it with joy to deliver his people from bondage. So there's joy and tribulations. This man did his work. He met opposition and, and, and obstacles and hurdles along the way. But thank God he kept at the work. And then Zerubbabel means seed of Babylon or actually born in Babylon. Abraham was also born in Babylon. Today it is southern Iraq. Just as Abraham was sent to found a nation, so Zerubbabel was sent to fortify or to build up a nation by getting them right, by getting the temple first before the walls were built. Get the inside right first before you uh, get up the walls of separation. Get things right on the inside. There's a message for us. The heart needs to be right. The heart needs to be right with God. And if it's not right with God, everything else in the life will not be right. And that's a challenge to preacher to us all. Uh, Zerubbabel, uh, the name also means uh, a stranger in Babylon. And Zerubbabel did not uh, see himself being at home in Babylon. His true home was Jerusalem. And we are not really at home in this world. Our home is the new Jerusalem above. Christ himself was a stranger. Uh, and in the world, he longed for the Father's house. And you can read John chapter 17, that great high priestly prayer. 
He loved his father. He loved where his father was. His people are strangers here too. That's what we read in the book of Hebrews. It certainly sets forth the perspective of the world that every Christian should have. Hebrews 11, verse 13. So when you think of these individuals, Zerubbabel, he was a civil leader, descendant of David, represents the kingly power of Christ. You have Joshua, the high priest, represented the priestly power of Christ. Then you have Haggai and uh, Zechariah. It's very possible that they came out of Babylon at the same time as Zerubbabel. They were colleagues. They were engaged together in, in the work of God. But Haggai and Zechariah, they were the ones who got the people stirred up in 520. The foundation was laid. Then for 15, 16 years, no work was done. And then these two men, over a few months, began to bring the message of the word. They preached the word. Haggai did it. Zechariah did it. And what happened? The people revived. And within three or four or five years, everything was complete. 515, 516. They were stirred up by the word of God. And God's stirring people here in the book of Ezra. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. And the word that is used there in verse 5, God had raised. It's the same word, same words in the original. God moved them. God aroused them. Oh, I think many a time that we need a stirring of God. Stirring of God in our services, in the pulpit, in the pew. We need to have our hearts stirred. And that's what we need in these times, a time of stirring. And when God began to stir, when God began to move, things began to happen. That's it. That's the secret. There's no other way. That's the secret. Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets at the time, presented the prophetic power of Christ. And these individuals represent Christ in his three offices of prophet, priest, and king. And as prophet, priest, and king, that's the way Christ is building his church today. And then we move on to the final thing. We move on to think for a moment about his task. What was his task? I've mentioned this already. His task was building the temple, which was a picture of building the church. I'm, I'm saying here's a man who points us to Christ. Here's a man who represents Christ. He's a figure of Christ. And the very work that he was given to do, his work was to build the temple. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, I will build my church. Matthew 16, verse 18. Now Cyrus, he spoke of being charged with uh, the work of building the temple, giving to us a glimpse of Christ, who was also commissioned to build the church. Now Zerubbabel and him, we see the work of Christ presented in an even clearer fashion. Now you think about the foundation. Every building has a foundation. This building has a foundation. Our homes, uh, the houses that we live in, they have uh, foundations. Every genuine building must have a foundation. And this man's a rubble, he laid the foundation. So the church has a foundation. And Christ is that foundation. Christ is the one that we build on. He's everything to us. He undergirds us. He supports us. He strengthens us. He meets us at the point of our need. We're building on the solid foundation. Christ is here. Then the, the finishing of the temple. Zechariah 4 verse 9 says, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. There it is again. His hand shall also finish it. This is a wonderful picture. It shows that Zerubbabel typifies Christ, who's the author and finisher of our faith. He is the foundation. He's the chief cornerstone. 
There's the finish. Christ finished the work. Tonight we rest upon a finished work. We have every confidence in Christ. And then there's the furnishings. When Zerubbabel finished the work, the house of God was finished. Yes, but it was also furnished. But what with? Well, we know what with. Cyrus entrusted the temple vessels, vessels to Zerubbabel, chapter 1, verse 8. And Paul compares believers to vessels, 2 Timothy 2, 19 and 20. They were vessels of gold and silver, all very precious, all reflecting the glory of God. The vessels were numbered as they were handed by the king to Zerubbabel. They were counted into his hand. The Lord knows those who are his. Every one is uh, taken account of, tallied up in the, the register of God. And when the last day comes and all of the church of God gather together in heaven, it will be the exact number given to Christ and the eternal covenant of redemption. We're all numbered, you know, we're gathered in by his matchless grace. The Lord knows those who are his. The vessels, these vessels, had been stolen by Nebuchadnezzar. They had been defiled by Belshazzar on the night Babylon fell. He was having this great idolatrous feast and the vessels were taken that night from the treasure house, but they were restored by Zerubbabel. Here's Christ again. He's the one who restores his people. Solomon built the first temple. Zerubbabel built the second temple, not as glorious as Solomon's temple, but the point is this. Christ is building the third temple. His church were the temples of the Holy Ghost. His church is his holy temple. And uh, he dwells in the midst of his people. So the return of the remnant foreshadows the end gathering into the church of the Israel of God has a like people through the work of one greater than Zerubbabel. That's the point. It also foreshadows the end gathering of God's people at the last day to the new Jerusalem above. Now, the curious thing about the whole thing is this. Even before the temple was completed and dedicated, the name of Zerubbabel disappears from the biblical record. So it would seem after he had finished his work, he disappeared. And the Lord Jesus, after he finished his work, he carried certainly uh, with his disciples for 40 days and then he disappeared. We know where he went to, of course. And we know he's coming back again. Hallelujah, he's coming again, the King of glory, our great Zerubbabel. But isn't that interesting? You move into chapter 7, you're introduced then to uh, Ezra. He takes over to, to the end of chapter 10. But Zerubbabel, the man who points us to Christ, he disappears from the scene. Christ finished the work and then he returned to his father in glory. Uh, did he return to Babylon after finishing his work? I, I don't know. Uh, some are of the opinion that the Persians feared a Jewish uprising, and that Zerubbabel had to be removed or even executed. I can't say that for sure. That may be a tradition. I don't know. But I know that he disappeared from the scene. Regardless, Zerubbabel is revered as one of the great Bible heroes, laboring to reconstruct the Lord's house and shining like a beacon toward the coming Messiah. And while the temple uh, he built paled away 
in insignificance uh, to size and grandeur of the temple erected by Solomon. It far outlasted Solomon's temple because the temple built by Zerubbabel was still standing 500 years later when the promised Messiah, Christ, graced its courts. And it was the presence of Christ in Zerubbabel's temple that made it different from that of Solomon. Christ himself stood in Zerubbabel's temple and the glory of Christ filled that place. So in that sense, it may not have been as big, uh, it may not have been as grand as Solomon's, but the important thing is Christ walked in it. Christ was there in that particular temple. He graced that temple. And we know that that temple was also beautified by, by King Herod. So here we have this man. He was given a work to do for God, appoint us to Christ. He didn't finish until the work was finished. Then he disappears. We don't know where to, but we know where Christ went to. He went to heaven. He's in God's right hand now. And one of these days is coming for his own redeemed people, the vessels. Because these vessels have got to fill the heavenly Father's house above. Gold and silver, precious to the Savior. Did you think that about that today? You're precious to him. You're under his blood. He gave his son to redeem you. And he's filling you and abiding with you by his gracious Holy Spirit. May God bless his word tonight. Let's get down to seek the Lord's face in prayer. In time, please. We'll ask our brother Peter, please, Peter Gibson, to pray. Thank you, Peter.